Corinthians chapter 5, 1 through 5 is our passage. If, I have, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open those now. The last thing I wrote on this sermon was the title because I wrestled with it for a long time. It is not an easy passage. It's a very strong, um, provoking passage in a sense. Finally, last night around 7, I finally penned down the title of this sermon, Preserving the Gift of Purity of, the church, of Christ's Church. Preserving the gift of the purity of Christ's church. Jesus Christ died on the cross to purify for himself a people that belongs to him, that is, as Peter says, his own possession. God loves the purity of his church. And those who are part of that church, if we are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly here as we speak about this in our local assembly here called Riverbend Community Church, we should care and, and fight and battle in a sense for the purity of the church. And that means we hold the line biblically when, not, when maybe sometimes nobody else does. There was a great set of preachers born around the turn of the century in 1900. One was A.W. Tozer, the other one was Vance Havner. They were born within a couple of years each other. One, Tozer, was born in West Virginia and Havner in the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina. They both were, were men called at an early age to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've read many of their writings. I'm sure some of you have as well as they ministered to me as preachers that went ahead of my time. Both of them were raised in a time where they began to see the rise of modernism. Modernism was uh, a movement that came and hit the church very hard in the early to, mid, uh, early to mid-1900s that basically said that, oh, the Bible's good, but it really can't deal with science. It really can't deal with psychology. It really can't deal with all those things. And a gate opened up into the church of very liberal, godless thinking. Both these men fought and stood against that their entire ministries. Tozer lived 66 years, Havner lived 85, and both are now with the Lord. They were, writing on, they were writing sermons and preaching regularly the state of the church, and I came across two quotes that really stimulate my thinking as I was working on this passage. First, A.W. Tozer, very close to the same sermon time Havner was preaching his sermon, he said this, Tozer says, Christianity is decaying. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Christianity is decaying. And going down into the gutter, listen to this, because the God of modern Christianity, modern Christianity, is not the God of the Bible. Way back then, early to mid-1900s, Tozier realized that there was a decaying aspect of the church because it was turning its back on the truth of God's Word. It was turning the back because the lost could not understand God created the heavens and the earth. And because the, because the lost couldn't understand it, the world started to cave to that and many, many other things. About that time, Vance Habner was preaching on the state of the church as well, and he said this, the devil's not fighting religion. He's too smart for that. <laughs> he is producing a counterfeit Christianity so much like the real one that good Christians are afraid to speak out against it. Whew. We are plainly told in the Scriptures that in the last days men will not endure sound doctrine and will depart from the faith and heap to themselves teachers to tickle their ears. 
He finally says this, we live in an epidemic, you can call it a pandemic if you want, of this itch. And popular preachers have developed ear-tickling to a fine art. Well, I think they nailed the state of the church even today. And because of lack of sound doctrine, America's churches are collapsing when it comes to biblical truth. They're compromising and they're collapsing. If God is just simply reduced to a God of love, now we have a God that works for the lost. We have a God that there's no one to be afraid of. There's no fear of him. There's no awe of him. And ultimately, this poor theology leads to the creation of a designer God. And in nowhere in a humanly designed God is there room for true justice. And nowhere in a humanly designed God is there room for things like church discipline that's in our text today. That just doesn't work. That's not the way you build the church. Christ died, listen to this, Christ died for our purity. You don't go to heaven unless you are pure. Your sins must be forgiven once and for all through the crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is chose by his sovereign grace before the foundations of the world to gather to himself a bride unstained by sin. And that's who we are today. And so the church today has dismissed those truths. And they have no interest in church discipline. They have no interest in the purity, the true purity of the church because it's too costly. People don't want to come to a church that teaches on sin. And so they failed to teach the full counsel of God's word. They failed to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as head of the church. The result is, Ephesians tells us, that those who are not understanding or come to the mindset of the fullness of Christ, they're tossed to and fro, back and forth, by every wind of doctrine and every trick that comes down the road and every spiritual rabbit pulled out of some charismatic hat. Man falls into that. And they fail to trust God. They fail to grow up in all aspects. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, they, they're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. When we reject the word of God, we reject Jesus Christ. It's his word. And so today, the American church is not held together by every joint and marrow through Jesus Christ. It's held together by their own opinions. So they think. Paul, in chapter 3 of this book, in verse 2, spoke to the Corinthian church as though they were babes. He says, you, you should be having solid food by now, but you're still nursing a spiritual bottle. The writer of Hebrews says very similar things, that they can only be taught elementary principles of the oracle of God because they still need milk, not solid food. And the problem is, is because they didn't trust the righteousness of God. They didn't trust the word of God. And so their senses now, the Bible says, has not been trained to know what's right and wrong biblically. And so many people who call themselves Christians today don't know what's right and wrong because they don't know the Bible. They don't read it. They often go to churches that don't speak it and teach it. And so we have 
a Corinth type of American church today. Well, bad theology leads to bad behavior. Theology, theo, God. Ology, the study of God. So bad theology, bad view of God leads to bad behavior. And this results in just a perversion of God's word of what he has to say. Because people would rather justify their selfish desires than bow the knee to what God says as they look at his ancient, ancient words. But God's words are not ancient. They plow through time, culture. They plow through everything to be true and right. And those who love God's word know it. We don't have no doubt. We don't look at those ancient words and say, oh, that doesn't apply today. We look at them and say, oh, what glorious news that God loves us so much that he's given us a way to live in our marriages, in our homes, in our society, in a way that we can exalt Jesus Christ. How kind of God to do that. But so many Christians today have allowed the world to influence their thinking. And the Bible just becomes this tool to manipulate their way and, or just disregard it altogether. Dear brother was telling me that he visited a local church lately and he said it was just like a nightclub. It was just a nightclub. Lasers and smoke and just going off. And then somewhere along the line, some guy gives up a little 15-minute sermonette that never opened his Bible with it. The church is packed. 1 Corinthians is a letter that shows the problems of the Corinth church. The church is just racked with problem after problem. And these, these problems... I've been because of this ongoing relationship that church has had with worldly thinking. For four chapters, Paul's been trying to grab their attention, trying to get them to reject the world's thinking and return to what God says. But because they haven't, they have all kinds of problems. Just think of some of them that we'll see here today and in the future weeks to come. We find today a man cohabitating with his stepmother in some immoral way. Next, we'll see that a brother has a lawsuit against another brother in the church and doesn't take it to the church or to the elders, takes it to the pagan courts to solve it. Then we'll see that there are some, some people eating meals in idolatrous feasts in pagan temples. And they're not there for outreach. And then there's others being baptized for the dead. I mean, you can just imagine all the false religions that have come out of that, right? Of today. This is where we find the Corinth church and where we find, unfortunately, the American church in so many ways. But the church had become arrogant. Chapter 4, verse 18. Paul said the church had become arrogant. He says it again in this text. And they've lost their respect for God and his God-given leadership. That's what happens when you won't repent, when you, when you stand on your laurels outside of the Bible, you'll get arrogant, you will not be teachable, and then you will not repent of sin. It started with the message of the cross. Paul says the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. Pretty soon the message of the cross just wasn't enough, right? Plato and Aristotle and these great orators, they're, they're really talking some good stuff. That you, you just want to keep talking about that cross. You know what happened to them? They lost their amazement in the cross. There were people who claimed to be Christians who are not still amazed that Jesus would die for me. Don't lose that, brother and sister, because sin's right on your heels. 
The amazement of the cross keeps us confessing, keeps us walking with the Lord. And because of this, now they begin to nitpick the leadership, and they begin to reject their teaching and their admonishments, and they want nothing to do with Paul. Look, they realize they gotta, they got to attack his qualifications, they got to attack his ability, because there's no way they can justify their behavior if they don't attack somebody else. And so now in Corinth, there's a crisis. There's, a, there's an authority crisis. Poor theology has developed poor behavior, and there's no one, there's no one in the church to say, that's wrong, we shouldn't be doing that. That's where the American church has landed. Well, this passage certainly deals with the individual sin of immorality. It's very clear. But you're going to see this morning that the bigger issue is not that man, it's the church. Paul certainly will deal with this sinning brother, but he is after the church. This should not have taken place. And in their arrogance, they have come to a place where they tolerate sin. And in their arrogance, they're emboldened to say, oh, we're free in Christ. We can live any way we want. What an abuse of grace. Now, to be sure and be accurate, the Greco-Roman Corinth world or culture was steeped in passionate sexual immorality. I mean, it's very clear. Uh, when you study, it's hard to pick up a commentary and go and read um, where this church is planted. You begin to realize how bad it is. The religions that they're known for in Corinth had prostitutes that granted sexual favors in their worship. That's how bad Corinth is. Everybody lived in open sin. It was just accepted. And if you stood against it, you were persecuted. One saying that I read, which was common, it came out of Corinth. This was a saying that they just, they talked about openly, men, women, and everybody else. They said this, mistresses we, we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. That's the way the men spoke in Corinth. And so here's this church that God says, I want you to go to Athens and, and stand on Mars Hill and proclaim that there's a God greater than all their gods that are dead. And then after you're done with that, I want you to go across that little, that little cut of water and plant a church in Corinth. Because I have souls there I want to save. Well, that's where Paul's at. He's right in the middle of a place full of human degradation. Paul addresses this with the churches all the time. Even in chapter 6, we'll see where he says, verse 18, flee from immorality. He's constantly dealing with the same word here. We'll talk about this in a minute. And, and every other sin that man commits outside his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of God? The Spirit lives within you. You have God. He bought you with a price. Glorify God with your body, right? He's always after this. In Ephesians chapter 5, the context is be imitators of Christ, be a savory, be an be a offering, a soothing aroma like Christ is, and offer your body and your life to serve like Jesus serves. And then he warns, verse 3, but immorality and any impurities or greed must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. There must be no filthy, uh, uh, filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather of giving thanks for this you know for certain that no, listen to this, no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. 
I mean, it's, it's a warning constantly. Chapter 3 of Colossians, after he says, your life is now hidden with Christ, he says in verse 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. And he goes on to give a list. And he says, because the wrath of God's coming on these things. To the Thessalonica church, a great church, a church that loved the word of God, he says, still excel more. In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, For you know the commandment we gave to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So Paul's constantly shooting the arrow across the bow of the church. Stay away from sexual immorality. It's because its tentacles are long and strong and pull people down into the deep. Over and over, you see Paul address the Corinth delight, Corinth church about their previous life. That's the way you used to be. Such were some of you. Don't go back there. Let that go. He's trying to bring them forward and help them understand their, their new creation and their new existence in Christ that they have. The problem is they had just this relaxed attitude towards sin. And relax is a bad word. They just... They didn't have a good attitude towards sin. They didn't, they didn't sing the song with us, not, not, my, not just sin, but my sin as the whole. I mean, that song, as Horatio Spafford wrote many years ago, he got to that verse and he just says, it's just, it's just not sin, it's the sin of the whole. It's, it's all that put my, my Savior on the cross. Overwhelmed with that. They, they had failed in that. And doubtlessly, they were even using theological excuses to drum up their lifestyle. Well, Paul's, man, he's livid, isn't he, when you read this passage? He's excited. And he points out, look, the sin of this guy in verse 1 is really easy to see. The problems with the believing community. That they're letting this take place. No less than four times, Paul says, put this man out, put this man out, put this man out, put this man out. Paul has taken him through the steps of church discipline, but they have not. And things get heated in this text. And there is a man sitting in full view, full view of the church. Well, Paul's argument now is just directly at the church. It's, that's mostly the thought here, not the man. We, we believe he might possibly be the man who does repent and is restored in, in 2 Corinthians. But the problem here is the church. He wants to elevate their low view of sin. He wants to elevate their view of sin and de-elevate de- themse- themselves. They had taken themselves high and sin low. And they took God with them in that. So will, will they follow the gospel? That's the question as we look at this. Will they continue to let this fallen brother in their midst, will they continue to listen to fallen worldly wisdom, or will they set their hearts towards the Lord? Well, let's see what Paul has to say in three thoughts here this morning as we look at this. Number one, arrogant and disobedience, arrogance and disobedience blind the sinning church from the glory of God and the wretchedness of sin. Well, Paul begins with a note of horror here as we look at verse 1. And it's really a two-sided problem as we've talked about. Verse 1 indicates the nature of the immoral deed by the sinning brother, right? So you see it real clearly what's going on That We'll get to that in a minute. Verse 2, he takes up the greater issue of the church and their lack of response to the sin that's in their midst is the word he uses. It's right in the middle of them. 
Now notice Paul begins, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality, immorality among you. Now this statement gives you the idea of how well this is known. Paul is nowhere close to Corinth right now. In fact, he's an ocean away. So somehow, without texting, without emails, without instant messaging, Paul finally hears how bad this is over there. Now we know there were some who delivered news to him about the church, and quite possibly that's come. But think about how much land and water this had to cross, how bad this is that it finally got to Paul. I mean, there's, there's kind of horror in the statement here, right? And the horror lies at the fact that there's this sexually immoral person amongst this church, and they're not doing anything about it. See, I think what it does, if you look at chapter 4, at the end, verse 21, it says, what do you desire? Shall I come with you with a rod or with love? The Spirit of Jonas. Well, you begin to see why he's saying this. Look, you, you might need the rod. You don't care about God. You don't care about the price of Christ's death to keep the church pure, and you're just allowing this to happen. And so you see Paul quite worked up here. So the report was sexual immorality, a church not responding. Now, the word sexual immorality is the word poinia, right? We get our English word porn from that. The original meaning of this was to use a prostitute or, or paying for some kind of sexual pleasure. But in time, the term broadened. It got, it got bigger, and it began to express any extramarital uh, sexual sin or any biblical abnormalities of it, and that something is not biblical. And it even took in homosexual, homosexual activity. In the New Testament, the word was often expressed with the immorality of the Greco-Roman culture, right? And so he uses the word pornea to really highlight that there's a problem here. When you study the Bible, we realize in any time this word poinia is used, it always has first place. Listen again to Colossians 3.5. Therefore, consider your members of your earthly bodies as dead, dead to immorality. There's our word poinia again. It leads a group of, of sinful habits. But Paul says, let's mortify the flesh here. Let, let, let's mortify this earthly flesh. Let's mortify our desires for things that are not of God. And so he gives a list of things. And the first one is pornea, this sexual immorality. And it's interesting that it always leads charge because the next stop is impurity. So you get engaged with something that's immoral. Pretty soon your lust for more impure things, whether watching, looking, or engaging. Then it goes to passion. So maybe the good passions that you had for good things at one time, now those passions now desire things, and you get ramped up for things that are not of God. And then it moves to evil desires. I mean, this sounds like 2020, doesn't it? Sounds like a dateline. Sexual immorality takes place. He gets caught up or she gets caught up in uh, impure things. And then passion takes over and pretty soon somebody dies or somebody's missing. So this is where sin goes. Sin's always after death. And Paul says the next one is because it's done with greed, which is idolatry. You want it something way more than you want it what God wanted. And idolatry takes place. Sexual sin begins at the heart. We know that. But here we begin to realize that sexual sin is a gateway to many other sins. 
And Paul sees that in the church. It's why there's so many problems in Corinth. This is why there's so many issues. They can't handle prophecy. They can't handle tongues. They can't handle things because they're immoral. And they're, they're, they're living for themselves and not for God. Now, the problem is not just sexual immorality in general. Because doubtlessly Paul has seen this sin and addressed this sin in Corinth. Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. This is a letter previous, an uninspired letter, but doubtlessly full of great things. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Right? So he's, he knows this is an issue. But what's really got Paul worked up is the tolerance for immorality that does not even exist among the pagans. Here's a church says that they're birthed by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and they have something among them in the midst of them that's so bad the pagan religions don't even do this. This is bad. Their moral standards are so low that the pagans seem to be outdoing them. Now be careful because somebody might go, well, good, I've not done that. I'm okay. No, no. Any, anything outside of the will of God is sinful. Sin is sin. But the last phrase of the verse describes the sin, what's going on here. It says that someone has his father's wife. Well, clearly the problem is incest here. It's in which a man is taking the wife of his father other than his own mother and has this ongoing immoral relationship with her. It's interesting he chooses this word, father's wife. That's the exact word out of in the Hebrew that we have in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 7 and 8. It's exactly, he's bringing that language right out of that. And then he uses a verb, echo, we translate it has, or meaning to have. And it's in a present continual tense. So the idea here is the sexual and moral relationship is gaining strength. It's ongoing. It's something that, that has been allowed to take place here. It's not just some one night stand here. And then again, it does not even exist among the Gentiles. And so here we have something so forbidden that the ancient cultures, both Jewish and pagan, see it as wrong. And it's happening within the church. The fact that the woman's name is not mentioned here, we understand that she's probably not a member of the church, but this man is a member of the church because he's to be put out of the membership. I, I, I don't know about you, but you can see kind of a clear and I believe righteous disgust by Paul over the sinful situation in the church of Corinth. Look at verse 2 with me. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Well, you and I may have a problem with verse 1. That's difficult to think about the, the grotesqueness and the godlessness of that relationship. But it's abundantly clear Paul's mind is on the greater issue of the church here. He, he deals very little with this guy. He's going after the church here. He sees this is where the problem is. See, Paul sees the sin as pride and boasting. And, and, and directs, it's just a direct rejection and obedience of God's word. Look at verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. No, look, the same terminology is used of their boasting of their worldly wisdom in chapters 2 and 3. But here he says you have become arrogant in, in verse 2. Same word, use this, puffed up. So in other words, in spite of this incestuous relationship that you've allowed in the midst of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you continue to hold your hides high. You continue to act 
arrogant, puffed up, your head held high is the idea of the Greek word here, in regards to this. <laughs> Such terrible, terrible things. And since it's clear in verse 9 that Paul wrote to them already, don't be engaged with immoral people, it's possible, let me say this, probable that this sin in their midst was something they may have been taking pride in. And you just go, oh, come on, Scott, could that be true? Could they be taking pride in an incestuous relationship within their church? Well, look, people take pride in all the time of not obeying God. Let me read you an example. This comes from a statement I've been told by many churches when talked to them about church discipline. Here's what they say. We are a loving church that loves sinners and hates the sin. So we accept people as they are, and we wait for God to change them. It's not our place to discipline them. Well, that all sounds a little sweet and kind and all fuzzy, but it's completely against God's word. You reject Jesus Christ himself, who says, when you see a brother in sin, go to them. If he doesn't repent, take him two more with you. And if he doesn't do that, take him to the church. And if he doesn't repent, then put him out. You just let them stay in there. So you go, well, could this be possible? It absolutely happens all the time. Down through 30 plus years of ministry, we've had a few church disciplines. And we've had them in this church since I've been here. And they've gone to other churches. And we've called those churches and said, hey, dear brother, there's a person coming over there. He's under church discipline. Would you help us bring this brother back to restoration? The goal of church discipline is to restore him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not into that. You're not into what Jesus says? I mean, and it gets really quiet on the other end. And, you know, then pretty soon the conversation's ended. These are God's words. And the Bible says you have become arrogant. See, arrogancy is when you think you know what to do better than what God's word says to do. That's, that's ultimate arrogancy, isn't it? And so this arrogancy has now blinded the eyes, blinded the mind and heart of this Corinth church to this fallen brother's condition and really to their own. And to this Blinded condition. Notice in verse 2, look what Paul says. You have not mourned. You have not mourned. Oh, my sin. Oh, the bliss of my sin. There's none of that going on. They don't, they don't see that as, as a horror to God. They don't see that as a, as a complete uh, rejection of the principle to allow somebody to actually encourage them to stay in the midst in a very sinful relationship. And so now we begins to say, you don't even mourn over this. This is a powerful verb that he uses. The idea of this verb carries the idea of going into mourning. It, it, it carries the idea of deep anguish of the soul. It's often related to true repentance of the righteous. And brother and sister, if you are a Christian, there have been times you have looked at your sin and you have had deep, deep sorrow in your soul. I hope you've had that. You see your Jesus hanging on a cross for you, being judged like he committed your sin. And when you look hard and you go, wow, my language is poor, or my attitude is poor, or my conduct is poor, or my thought life is poor, you come up against the Lord Jesus Christ and you mourn over your sin at times. I hope we do that. That's a healthy church. 
That's a healthy Christian. That's not a blind Christian. That's one who has a right relationship with God, who mourns over their own sin. And look, brothers, let me go a step further. We mourn over the sin of others. I have never enjoyed church discipline. There are hours and hours and hours of counsel and broken hearts and rejection of truth. By the time you get to the stage four where you, where you put them out of the church, there are indescribable heartaches that go with it. But the only person mourning are those who love them to call them to repentance. They're out because they don't mourn over their sins. Do you see this? See, a godly church mourns over sin. We would not allow a brother or sister to be among our midst without dealing with them. Do you mourn over sin? Second thought this morning. The unity of the church resides with the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ along with her members. The unity of the church resides with the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ along with her members. Look at verse 3 with me. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in the Spirit, have already judged him as, uh, judged him as so committed this as though I were present. Now, the, word, the phrase for I is very emphatic. And what he's doing is he says, look... Your stance is poor. You're allowing sin. I'm going to say my emphatic stance, as for me, as for I, I stand completely opposed to the arrogance of the church. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. You have done nothing. You've not even mourned over this man's sin, but I can't do that because this is a sin against our God and Savior in the purity of his bride. That's what he's saying here in this verse. You may all think this is great. Oh, boy, we're such a loving church. We let a guy in that lives contrary to the Bible. Oh, look how loving we are. Paul says, I'm not with you. In fact, I stand totally opposed to you. You're, you're, you're against God. You're not handling sin correctly. You're against a God who purified his bride. You're like, I don't know if I said this earlier in the first service or not, you're like a bride who's just about ready to come down the aisle and somebody throws mud over her white dress. And you don't care. That's graphic, isn't it? See, that's, that's why he says, I am opposed to this. Christ purchased, he, he cleansed us, he made us his children, he's washed our sins away, past, present, and future sins. And so we, we, by that grace of God, motivates us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And look, we're all sinners, your pastor included. Do we regularly confess our sins before the Lord? If a dear brother or sister approaches you and said, hey, can I just ask you, I've seen something, I'm a little bit concerned. Are you going to get defensive? Are you going to get arrogant? Are you going to say, hey, I'm blind in some areas. Can you help me with that? And you begin to work through that process. Oh, there's such a difference between an arrogant church. Notice Paul takes just this decisive action in his, in his action, doesn't want to stand alone. Look, he says, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. So what Paul is saying, I'm acting in the context of the gathered church where he and the power of Christ are present right? I'm there. And in other words, I'm making my decision as though I'm standing in the presence of the membership. You go, wasn't that kind of weird? He's not there. No, he talks like this all the time. Colossians chapter two, verse five, for even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit. This verse, he's rejoicing of their good discipline and their stability in the faith in Christ. He says this all the time. 
You go, well, how can this be? This but present in spirit is a difficult phrase, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's a little bit, but think about this. It's tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's talked about the unity that the Spirit of God brings in chapter 2. And under the new covenant, the, the believer has received the Spirit of God Chapter 2, 13, 12 and 13, right? We receive the Spirit of God. That Spirit of God has made us one. He, made, he, he unites us together, and we become his holy temple. So there is a connection that when my spirit, Paul says, has received the Holy Spirit, I'm with you as the Holy Spirit is with us. So he says, look, I might not be there present, but I'm there in spirit because the Spirit of God is there. And so listen, what this taught me is, you know, there may be someone who's not here or someone else. There's, there's, when you see a brother or sister in sin, our goal is to humbly and broken and make sure we confess our own sins and we're right with the Lord. Our sin is to go to them. You may have to do this on the phone or somewhere else. The, the Spirit of God unites our hearts together. And so here's Paul across an ocean going, look, I'm there with you. I'm there because the Spirit's there. I think there's one more aspect to this that I thought deeply about. I think it's the role in the inspiration of the letter. So here you have this church who's reading this spirit-inspired letter by Paul that he's written, and the spirit is in amidst, amidst of them, speaking directly to them through this inspired letter as they gathered. So I think what Paul is saying, I'm present with you with the spirit of God because he speaks in this prophetic word of judgment in your presence. Quite a statement, isn't it? See, they thought they could get away with things because Paul wasn't there. Because, but I'm there. I'm there because our hearts, our, our unity is tied together in the Spirit of God. Now notice he says in verse 3, I have already judged him who has so committed this. Because the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of truth, Paul knows, and by his apostolic authority and his position over the church there in Corinth, he has already sentenced this man, right? He's passed sentence. Already judge, it's a perfect active verb there, means there's finality to this. I already did it. You didn't do it, but I have already done it. I've already taken this man and put him out, spiritually speaking. Now, Paul, through the understanding of God's moral design for his people and through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, knew how important it was to follow up in complete church discipline. That's what he's saying here. You, got, you want to leave this unended? One of the things we talk about as elders is if we have an issue, if we have a, an issue that's going through discipline, we make sure that we don't just walk away from it. Has this person repented? Great, it's done. If not, we, we got to keep working, right? We kind of keep counseling. We kind of keep leading them towards repentance and eventually restoration. But if they continue to refuse that, we have to keep moving. That's what the Bible says. And this is what Paul does because he says, look, I... I've done it. I've completed what God has said. I'm not in disobedience. Look at verse 4 with me. In the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus, when you assemble, when you are assembled, I with you in the Spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now Paul desires this action of the church to be carried out in the presence of the Spirit, whereby Paul's with them, right, and assembled together with them. And oh yeah, let me remind you of this, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is here too. That's quite a statement. You think you're going to leave Jesus out of this issue? He's the one that wrote the words of why we do what we do. <laughs> so he says, look, the power of Jesus is with you. And you can see how Paul is longing. Look, he's longing for this community of believers to clean out the leaven. We'll look at this next week in verse 6. 
and act in unity with the Spirit. And so he calls in the name, the glory of the Lord Jesus. Look at that in verse 4. He calls in the name and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go, well, how do you understand that role? Well, well, Jesus is involved in so many things. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says this, To him be the glory in the church. If somebody walks in this church and worships with us, do they see and sense the glory of Jesus Christ? Do they see our love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they see us dedicated to his words and not ours? Do they see us worship and make Jesus ahead in the, in the center of our worship? Do they see that in our children's ministry? Do they see us discipling as Jesus told us to make disciples? Do they see God? Do they see God through Christ and see his glory? That is what the church is supposed to be doing. And a believer will walk into this room, one who's following the Lord will say, Wow! The presence and the glory of the Lord is really among this church. That's what we should, how we should be living. Chapter 2, verse 16, Paul said, you have the mind of Christ. So that's how he's here. Hebrews chapter 13, 5 and 6, I'll never desert you, or I will never forsake you. So we have confidence that the Lord is our helper, and we're not afraid. What will man do to us? So we understand he's with us. Christ is with us. Philippians chapter 1, 19, we have the provision of the Spirit of Christ. Isn't that awesome? We have the gift of the Spirit of Christ among us. See, Paul's not saying, oh, you guys go deal with yourself. No, you have the Spirit with you, and you have the power of Jesus Christ with you. Philippians 4.23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit. And so there's grace to deal with that. Now, we looked at Paul's words. Where is he getting this from? Turn with me to Matthew 18. Because here we have to look at where this, all this instruction is coming from. Matthew 18 is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples of how to keep his church, his ecclesia, that's coming to be pure. It's a passage that so many churches in America now skip and don't want to deal with. Look with me at chapter 18, starting in verse 15. Now, there's a beautiful teaching here, and I want you to catch this. If your brother is in sin, go to him and show him his faults in private. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Isn't that beautiful that the Lord sends us a tangible person, right? He cares so much about me that if I'm in sin, he'll send someone to deal with me. I think that's a great, loving, loving Lord. And notice it's a brother. It's someone that's dear to me, cares about me. And listen, listen, you've heard me say this before. Church discipline happens in your homes all the time. Scott says something not so kind to Gina. Gina, in a humble way, comes and says, you know, honey, um, I didn't deserve that. That was not right. And I say, oh, sweetie, you're right. Doesn't always happen this fast. This is the goal. <laughs> you're right, sweetie. That was godless. I let some pressure and some issues in my life take control of me there for a moment. And so when I spoke to you, I let myself speak in a sinful way to you. Will you forgive me? And she says, of course, sweetie. I love you. You're forgiven. Done. Step one. No step two. 
This should be happening in our homes. This should be happening in our church. This should be happening in our families. This is, this is the graciousness of God so that things don't get swept under the rug. But here's what people do. Well, you know, you don't know what kind of pressure I'm on. And, and, you know, and we blame all stuff. And then we sweep it under a rug. And there's a giant lump there. And you trip over it for the rest of the years of your marriage because you never dealt with it. Look how gracious God is. If you see your brother in sin, go to them. You better, you better have your own sins confessed. You better be right with God so you don't come across judgmental. But in a kind, loving way, you go to that dear friend, that dear brother and, or sister in the Lord and say, oh, oh, person, I, I love you. And I, I'm not sure about this, but I've seen some things that don't seem to line up with what God says. See how kind God is to us? See how kind Jesus is? He's helping this, these leaders of the church get ready to lead sinful people. What if everybody just does what right in their own eyes? None of us would be here. There would be no church. We do what's right according to God's eyes, right? And sometimes my eyes are what? Blind. So I need my sister in the Lord. That's my wife. She's also my sister in the Lord. To come and say, honey, that hurt. And there the process ends with repentance. But notice... It may not happen there. So if he listens to you, you've won a brother, that's praise the Lord. That happens all the time. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that the, by, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So we go to step two. And again, a loving nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, I know man, I know he's fallen. I know his heart gets hard at times. We may have to go to another step to rescue this dear brother, Right? Gene might have to go get Brian. <laughs> Brian, you got to come. Scott's being really stubborn. And so Gina goes, gets Brian, and comes to me and, and, and reports these things. And they've seen this in my life because they love me and they obey the Lord Jesus because they love the Lord Jesus and they want the church pure. So they love me enough to say, hey, brother, there's an issue here. See, God is after the purity of his church, he's after the purity of your marriage. He's after the purity of your home. He's after purity because that's what his son died for. And instead, we just dismiss it. Oh, you don't know what I'm going through. And we shove it under the rug. And like I said earlier, you'll trip over it the rest of your marriage. Why don't we just take these steps and say, you're right. Thank you, Gina. Thank you for bringing Brian. My, my blinders were just really strong that day, and I just couldn't see it. And you helped by the God's word, pull them back, and you go, oh, wow, my sin, the bliss, the whole of it and you repent. Isn't that good news? Do you want to live in sin? Do you want to live where you're miserable, not obeying God when you know you should, and you don't? Most of us do that for quite some time, don't we? Look how kind God is. Problem is, hearts get hard, don't they? Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Whoa. Do you notice what happens, how kind God is? He keeps our sin really small in, in its circle. Just Gina and I at home, little, little small group, and if I repent, done. But because I don't repent, what happens? Well, Brian's there now. Now, now I'm in, maybe he has to bring another elder because I'm an elder and, and, and there's a stricter judgment for us, but you know, the group got bigger. And now because of a hard heart, because of refusal to care for the purity of what God has done in your own life, let alone the entire church, now it's got to go to a larger group to get them involved now. Because God loves purity. 
And so now, an elder stands before the church and says, hey, this guy, he's not repenting. There's been hours and hours and hours of counsel. We've been pleading and weeping and trying to help them love the Lord more than they love themselves. And they won't repent, so we're asking your help now. We're asking you to get involved. See, this is a God who loves his church. But the problem is, look what happens. And if he refuses to listen, even, notice that verse, even to the church. The group's huge now. The sin is now shared with everybody. But the heart is still hard. It goes to step four. The Bible says, let him be to you a Gentile, a pagan, a tax collector. See, this is where Paul's at already in 1 Corinthians 5. He's already been there. He's already told them, don't be immoral. He's already told them not to associate with an immoral person. They have not done it. They've had it in their midst. They're not doing that. And so they so that put him out. And Paul says, look, I put him out. Four times he says in the text, I put him out, I put him out, I put him out, I put him out. You know why? Because he loves Jesus more than his own reputation. And a lot of people don't do church discipline because they're scared of losing their reputation. Let me ask you this question. Who will you stand before in the end of time? Your reputation? (laughs) Or will you stand before Jesus, the king, the head of the church? See, this is serious stuff, isn't it? I love the last few verses. My time is running away quickly. But look at verse 20. Look at what he does. He says, I want to strengthen you where two or three are gathered. If you're in this process and you care enough people about these people who are sinning, if you care enough about the purity of my church, when you gather to do these things, I'm going to be right with you. And he actually uses the exact same word in your midst that Paul is talking about, the sins in the midst of Corinth. He uses that same one. I'm going to be right in the middle of you. And I'm going to help you do this. And you think everybody's going to leave your church. I remember being a young pastor doing my first church discipline going, oh, Lord, I have like six people, (laughs) and half of them are my family. And if we do this, oh, I'm going to have anybody. And the Lord had me study this passage, and I realized he's with me. Go do it. And our church grew. Because God says, now I see that you care about me more than your own repetition so I'm going to send you people. This is how our Lord works. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me just finish out a few thoughts. As I sum up verses 3 and 4, here's what I wrote in my notes. I think Paul's saying this. As for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm present with you in spirit and through the spirit. And I've already, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his glory and the protection of his purity of his church, I've pronounced sentence on this man who displays God. I think that's what he's saying. You guys are spiritual wimps. (laughs) You you will not stand up for what Jesus says, but not me. Because he's coming back someday, and I want to stand before him and say that I did everything in my power to obey you through your strength. Third thought, the goal of church discipline is repentance and restoration. The goal of church discipline is repentance and restoration. Look at verse 5 with me. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, this, these words bring us to the final act of judgment, both in description of it, right? Delivering over to Satan, very descriptive, but then the end result that he'll be saved, right? So you see both. 
You see the description of his judgment, but then you see the result of what he's after, him to be saved. This is the goal of church discipline. We don't discipline people because we don't like them. We discipline them because God tells us, and the ultimate goal is restoration, repentance and restoration. And so here Paul has the same goal, right? Now these are some strong words and in the context, through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit and the community of believers, Paul says, I'm handing this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, this isn't the only place he uses this. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 22, two false teachers. He said, among these, Hymenius and Alexander. Alexander did great harm to Apostle Paul. He says, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, now, now think about this. If we stay in unrepentive sin, if, if we refuse to repent, and church discipline has to take its process in us, it is showing us that we blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ. Because most people who go through church discipline say they're Christians, right? We don't discipline non-unsaved people. Now, in the end, it may, sh- it may show that they're not saved, but we, we take them at their word that they say they're Savior. So it's blasphemous because of this. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, purified the church, has given me eternal standing with him, but I'm not going to quit sinning. That's blasphemy. I believe that Jesus has the power to to restore me, to have me in a right standing with him, but I'm not going to repent from this sin. I don't care. I've had men and women in my office said, I know what the Bible says. I'm going to do this anyway. And I said, I'm just going to step back because I hear a train coming. And that train is Satan's world. And it's full of demons and principalities and powers. And so here we can start to see that this unrepentant sinner is to be excluded from the life of the church. This is so sad. When I I write this, just as I type this this week, my heart was sad. Because now this person is put out from the church. They, They now are not included in worship. It wasn't singing beautiful this morning. I can hear you. I sit up front. You should try it one of these days. Um, you should come up here. The singing's beautiful. I can't imagine. I can't imagine not being able to be part of that. I can't imagine not being here and hearing Hayward and the team and the choir leading me so my heart is ready to preach the word and hear the word. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine not being under the word of God by somebody who cares for the souls of the flock, who preaches Christ-centered messages. See, all this goes away. Instruction and meals and fellowship and the Lord's table and baptisms, all of that, that rather now is put away from that. The phrase delivered over to Satan is a difficult one, but I think the language helps us understand things. It means that he's turned back to Satan's dominion. So I don't necessarily believe that Satan's there to attack him personally. He may, but, but more the idea that this person now lives in Satan's realm. And that's great contrast to the beauty of the community of believers. He's no longer edified by the gifts of the believers and the concern and love and prayer. He's now put out to the cold world of depravity. And after you've tasted Jesus Christ, after you've been with his people, that's a cold, dark world. And you never want to be there. Paul says, I've delivered him over. See, Satan and his principalities and his power still hold great sway over, over the lost, and they seek to destroy them. And with this action, the church is cleaning out the old leaven. We're a new loaf. We're free from sin. God wants us to stay that way. So we deal with known sins. He uses the phrase destruction of the flesh. This is a, this is a hard one, but I think that's what Matthew 18, 17 is talking about. The fourth step of church discipline is to treat that person like an unbeliever. 
They're, they're, they're still, what do we do with unbelievers? We share the gospel with them, don't we? But we don't give them communion. We don't let them enjoy the blessings of God. They, they can't. They don't have the Spirit of God to do that. So we love them and treat them as lost. So that means our relationship with them is strictly the gospel. And that is the goal to destroy their flesh. So we don't get into relationships where, the, where their flesh is, is increased. We don't become part of that, that love of the flesh. We become part of the gospel that shows how to kill the flesh. That's what the gospel does. So I don't believe the scriptures are teaching us to give up on this person. In fact, just the opposite. Look what Paul says in the end of five. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. And look, certainly there are some cases of death and disobedience. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, boom, dead and <laughs> disobedient. Um, there's physical death sometimes at the hand of Satan, Job's kids, his servants. God used that ultimately, is in control of those things. Paul says he had a thorn in the flesh carried out by a messenger of Satan. And then there's those who take the Lord's table in an unworthy way. The Bible says they, they get sick and even sleep, die. But the grammar, the grammar of this verse is so great. The grammar matches Paul's theology because what Paul says, he says, look, deliver him over to the destruction of his flesh because I'm anticipating that God will use the domain of Satan to turn his heart back to, to become a repentant sinner someday and he'll be saved when the Lord comes. So listen, if you don't do church discipline, you're not doing that person any favors. You just let him live in it. You say, oh, that's okay. Maybe you'll come around. God says, now put them out, put them back into Satan's world, let them long for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ again. It'll show whether they're saved or not. Oh, this is a powerful passage. I told you, buckle up on this one. These are serious things, and you can see that the church is suffering from these today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, quickly. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkenness, nor revivers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to this verse, because this is what Paul believes. Such were some of you. Anybody in here ever stole anything? I mean, all of us have stolen something, time, a pencil from the office. I mean, don't even try to get around that one. You're a thief, <laughs> right? Covetousness, wait a minute. You go, well, I'm, I, you know, some of those other big ones, I'm not. But have you ever desired something you don't have? You're all coveters, and I am too, right? Adulterous, think about it. You ever lusted after somebody? I mean, most people have, I think. Look, the Bible says, look, this is us. And I love Paul's and Paul's delight in the Lord that he says, such were some of you. So when we have to go through church discipline with somebody, the goal is restorate, the goal is repentance and restoration. Let me say it again. The goal is repentance and restoration. That's always the goal. And Paul believes that if we turn them over to Satan, if we let Satan burn this out of him in a sense with his wicked world, and they come running back to the Lord Jesus Christ, that person's soul will be saved in the last day. See, that's the goal. This is why we do church discipline, brothers and sisters. It's not easy. It's not fun. But this is what God wants. And we can't be the church of Corinth that sits back and says, yeah, we don't care. In fact, we're, after, we're actually proud of what we're doing. We just love them and we let them stay. God says, no. That purity cost my son's death. Keep my church pure. And so we obey the Lord even when it's difficult. So I believe Paul has hope. 
And he says this in so many words, if you will stop being arrogant, church, if you will stop being an arrogant church and seek to obey the full counsel of God's word and biblically discipline the sinning brothers or sisters, you can have hope that God will save their souls in the day of the Lord. If you don't, it's like you've got to just slap them on the back and say, good luck, hope we see you in heaven. You're on your own now. What a terrible thing to do. Look, family, God gives us church discipline to do because that's his decision, not ours. And this is an awful situation in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5. It's deep and it's dark. But Paul gives us the way to handle this through the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This church stands on the full counsel of God's word. We're not a perfect church, but we're trying to follow our Lord word by word, verse by verse. Will you join us? Amen? Amen. Father, we love you and we thank you that you love us enough that you would show us how to be right with you when we fail. We think you're worthy of our praise from our singing to our preaching to our fellowship to our discipleship to our counseling to everything. Lord, you're worthy of our praise and our love and our hope is in you, Lord. And so we obey you even when the world says that's foolish or even other so-called churches say it's foolish. So Lord, help us be a church that won't relent on obeying you with with our own hearts confessing and repenting Um, striving to be godly people by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit that dwells within us, Lord. Help us. We can't do this on our own. Lord, thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the long history at Riverbend that has fought, fought and stood for the sufficiency of God's word in all things, Lord. May we continue for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.